0: Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. Tiffany Caban started 2019 as a 31-year-old public defender in her native New York City. She knew that the criminal justice system wasn't working for her clients or for the city. Something had to change, and she decided that she would be the change agent. With encouragement from a small circle of friends and fellow reformers, she entered the race for district attorney in Queens. There were other candidates running in the Democratic primary, better known contenders with more money and more political connections. But Caban embraced a movement politics that took its cues from grassroots activists and policy specialists. She declared, quote, I am a public defender. I've spent my career working for people who did not have resources to defend themselves against the brutal system of mass incarceration. I am running to transform the Queen's district attorney's office after years of witnessing its abuses on the front lines, end quote. Tens of thousands joined in. This movement campaign electrified activists not just in Queens and New York City, but across the country. On primary election night in June, Caban finished narrowly ahead. However, elections don't always end on election night. An extended recount cost her the nomination. But she has not stopped building the movement to transform a criminal justice system that fails to deliver justice. Tiffany Caban, welcome to Next Left.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: There's so much I want to talk to you about, but uh, I want to begin with something you're doing right now, because I think it shows us so much about uh, what can come from running for a high profile position, doing it in an issue oriented way. You're currently kind of in real time, reviewing the criminal justice platforms, the programs of candidates for president. And you're doing it on Twitter. You're doing it on social media. Tell me about that a little bit.
1: It's been very very cool to to see some of the things that we were running on um be present in you know in the in the national conversation. And we saw it a little bit earlier I think, you know, towards the end of my campaign when Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren jumped in, immediately people asked them where they stood on things like decriminalizing sex work and the construction of new jails and things like that. And for me, What's been really incredible is, is not just to see what happened on a local level in terms of really pushing the field that we were running against further left, right? Having to center the, the things that our community organizers and, and directly impacted folks were were fighting for and saying about their experiences. But, you know, what I have done is really made myself open and available to anyone, any presidential candidate that is interested in hearing about our platform, our policies, along with the other people that they're consulting with. I'm just like, oh, we have white papers. Do you want to read our white papers? Like, as many people we could, you know, get our stuff into into their hands, the better, because I just think, you know, it's so important to be having the conversation and it's invaluable to have these platforms to, you know, to really extend the, the conversation across the country because we need a coalition build when we talk about redefining what it means to prosecute, redefining how we achieve public safety and getting to the root causes of destabilization and things like that. It's a small coalition at this point that are really driving this decarceral conversation and they and we are open to attack. At this point, and so really, it's about coalition building, so that we can come together uh, and you know really forward our progress.
0: And let's let our listeners know what decarceral means, because it's a term that's being brought into our discourse, and obviously, you've made it very central in Queens. But there's probably a lot of folks across the country that are still they're still a little unfamiliar.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When we talk about being decarceral, it's really about saying that we are going to make sure that we are doing nothing to further invest in our prison industrial complex, that our goal is really to keep people rooted in their communities with access to services and supports, and that the way that we achieve public safety is kind of divesting from our our district attorney's office, from our policing system, and really investing in other areas, understanding that so much of what we criminalize are actually public health issues. When we talk about the criminalization of poverty, of mental health issues, of substance use disorder, we even really should be having the conversation around treating violence Violence as a public health issue, because they're all really intertwined. And for me, the reason why it was so important, and language in general is so important, is because, you know, things get lost. I, I mean, everybody wants to call themselves a progressive prosecutor. The, I mean, the, One of the reasons why I ran was because I was practicing public defense in Manhattan, and, and D.A. Cy Vance was calling himself a progressive prosecutor. And they were these good-sounding policies. But certainly, I was uh, you know, in court the next day after these policies would come out, realizing that there was an asterisk in my clients, namely our, our black and brown clients, our, our immigrant, our, our low-income, our LGBTQIA plus clients. They were just continuing to be the exception to the rule. And so everybody was saying, well, I'm going to be a progressive prosecutor to the point where it really lost meaning. And, you know, understanding that we're sort of in the third cycle of these progressive, so-called, you know, quote, progressive prosecutor races. So the, the playbook is out there. And, you know, when you talk about being a decarceral prosecutor, when you talk about getting to the root causes of behavior, saying that, you know, we're not punishing for the sake of punishing, but really what we want to do is is help stabilize lives and, uh, and change behavior where we can, decarceral seems much more appropriate And it's a way to really um, differentiate from other folks because, you know, the, the danger is there in terms of just people speaking in platitudes and not us not really seeing advancement in the areas that we need it.
0: Let's talk about the campaign. Here you are, a young woman, you know, making your career. And suddenly you decide to run for one of the most powerful DA offices in the country. How did that happen?
1: It happened really organically. I never ever thought that I would be running for office, and certainly never thought that I would be running for district a- attorney. I'm a career public defender. You know, I mean, when I say who I am, when I introduce myself, when I talk about, you know, I'm I am queer, I am a Latina, uh, I am a public defender. Like it is that, you know, it's 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 we see it as as tied to our identity, and so I certainly never thought that I would be running for for DA, but I. Again, I thought it was a perfect storm of of circumstances where there was a real opportunity where this this run felt in so many ways, like the continuation of the work that I was always doing. And I saw it as part of a larger... Uh, like a piece in a larger ecosystem about how things have to work if we are going to bring about systemic change, if we are really, really going to start dismantling our system of oppression, of racism, of classism. And, you know, a friend <laughs> texted me and, and said, you should do this. And then I met with a few more friends and we kind of hammered out the details. But how the platform developed was just, I went to a convening with, uh, a bunch of folks from different DA's offices around the country, progressive, decarceral DA's offices that were getting together to to talk about how they could better use data to to forward the movement. Um, and, you know, I said data, data is one thing, but the the one thing that I really appreciate is that overwhelmingly what I found throughout this process was that I looked to people and experiences first, and then it was just such a beautiful thing that the data and the research and the studies, they they match it, right? Um, So the way that the platform really developed was, one, understanding that this was harm reduction, understanding that this is a, a you're still moving into a system which has its own level of constraints, but as part of a larger ecosystem, I see the role in that as being able to push out the boundaries as much as we can, start saying we're not gonna do these things historically that that this structure has done. We see the the possibility to do things wildly different, but also create a space and be part of an ecosystem that really allows outside accountability. Right? When you create opportunities for activists and community-based organizations to play their part in this ecosystem to kind of push back, but then looking at what the DA could do, what the role could be, and how to develop the, you know, the, the platform to, to make some of those things happen, I literally developed a platform sitting on my couch. I come home from a, a long day and that was those were probably some of my happiest like most excited moments throughout the campaign process just nerding out on my couch with a couple of people you know saying what the what the policy should be. Every policy that we thought about was tied to a person an experience and a story uh, and then taking those ideas and putting them on paper and then finding out who are the people talking about these things right. So. You know, when we said we want to talk about harm reduction and, and this is these are the approaches we want to take in terms of safe injection sites and decriminalization of, of drug possession. This is about public health outcomes and how do we better save lives and stabilize lives. It, you know, it comes from talking to people that directly are impacted. Same with sex work. Experiences of my clients and then going to folks that are doing the work, you know, Red Canary Song and Decrim and all all of that. And, and then, you know, what you see is that it, that it really... It really aligns in such a a beautiful way. And when the process looks like that, it's so easy to stay rooted in what you're fighting for. And so one of the things that I was really, really proud of was that, you know, the platform that we wrote sitting on my couch, it looked exactly the same to primary day.
0: Well, and this is one of the interesting things about you. I think that for people who are on the outside of politics and you've gotten on the inside whether you like it or not <laughs> uh, but, I don't know
1: how I feel about it yeah well that's fair
0: <laughs> but people who are on the outside of politics I think have a lot of illusions about it to my mind one of the one of the great strengths that a political leader has is the ability to engage other people and the desire to have this sort of deep intersectional conversation with a lot of folks, to have an ongoing conversation, to learn things. And it seems to me that you started with a, if I'm right, with a, a group of women who were your friends and allies mm-hmm. and built this conversation out from there. You were at the center of it, but you you were asking more questions. Oh, absolutely. Than probably anybody in the room. And I think that was a great strength of your campaign.
1: I wanted to get it right. It's It's too... It's too fucking important. I, we're talking about lives. And certainly, you know, what brought me to my work w- were my own personal traumas. Like, you know, when I look at the communities that I worked as a public defender, at th- th- it's it's tied to my own experiences, my parents' experiences, and recognizing that I have had access to, to privileges and opportunities that they did not, not by virtue of me being able to pull myself up by my bootstraps, but just by, you know, in so many ways, luck and, and different opportunities. I I've often pointed to the fact that my dad got a union gig, and that made all the difference in the world for me. But I just, it was too important to get it right. And this idea that You know, the people who are the most directly impacted should be informing policy. And then we need to create systems and structures that allow for them to hold us accountable.
0: And it struck me in watching your campaign that one of the most courageous things you did and one of the the boldest things you did was even when you got pressure on it, you stuck very firmly to an argument about decriminalization of sex work yes and this is something i am sure that there are probably some political types who said oh well you know if you just kind of dial that down a little it'll be easier for you but you didn't and i think that that it's been a a really powerful part of your politics just a few of your thoughts on why that is so important
1: i I mean it's rooted in the fact that we're talking about human beings and this is about human rights issues and public health issues and public safety issues. And when all you are concerned about is really making sure that you are providing people with access to human basic needs, then these are the things that make all of the sense in the world and if you are not going and ready to go out into a space to fight for folks who have been so marginalized like you know communities that have been on the margins of the margins you know sex workers here in queens you have a a large contingent of sex workers in jackson heights that are trans latino folks um you have a large population in flushing that are are migrant workers we're talking about people that are incredibly incredibly vulnerable because of Mm -hmm. you know systemic oppression and, and and discrimination against them barriers to access to housing, to health care and to education, and how do we make sure that we're keeping everybody safe? And then when I think about it, I mean it's it was a really powerful thing for me to be running on the platform we were running on the 50th anniversary of, of Stonewall, understanding that mm-hmm. it, you know it, it was trans women, right that were putting their bodies on the line to protest and riot against police brutality. And so we have to show up. We have to show up for other people um, the way that, that they have shown up for all of us. And it's just about having these very open conversations of saying, like, listen, if our goal is public safety, then we, we have to decriminalize sex work. This is the way that we make sure that we are combating trafficking. This is the way that we make sure that everybody has an opportunity to access medical care and help from law enforcement if if they are the, the survivor or victim of, of trafficking or sexual assaults or things like that. You know, again, I came into this race saying that We were running on this platform, we were going to center the folks that were directly impacted, and we were going to give zero fucks. We were going to do it unapologetically, because that is what our communities deserved, and it is the only way that we're going to get the kind of change that we so desperately need.
0: We'll be back after these messages. The biggest problems facing the world don't respect political boundaries, but are our politicians and other leaders up to the task of solving them? Join host Louisa Savage and political journalists from across the world as they unpack the answer to that question on Politico's Global Translations podcast. The first season examines who will write global rules for trade, for new technologies like 5G and AI, and for fighting climate change. Search for Politico's Global Translations, wherever you're listening to this show. If you're into the nation's brand of no-holds-barred journalism and analysis, make sure to check out our friends at Mother Jones. They have this awesome podcast out every Wednesday, hosted by Jamila King. It's called The Mother Jones Podcast. Each episode goes deep on something you probably don't know about. One recent three-part series on the show explored America's hidden war in Syria with award-winning journalist Shane Bauer, who went behind the lines of this conflict to bring you surprising stories from inside an ISIS prison and an exclusive interview with the first American woman to be charged with terrorism for joining her husband in the Islamic State. The Mother Jones podcast shares with you the best investigations from the magazine. Think electoral skullduggery, dark money, and Trump's Russia connections, alongside informative interviews with Mother Jones reporters and newsmakers. The Mother Jones podcast makes your week more informed with the stories that really matter, told by their team of smart, fearless reporters. Subscribe now on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy quality podcasts. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with Tiffany Caban. And you did something that I think is really powerful from the start of your campaign. You brought your personal profile up front. And it wasn't a profile. It wasn't done in the way that, you know, a bunch of consultants sit around and say to do it. Uh, You said from the start of your campaign, I'm a queer Latina from a working class family. People like us are exactly who the system is trying to keep down. That's why I became a public defender, and that's why I'm running for Queens DA." That's just such a powerful introduction.
1: I think um, it is just so important to humanize this system and this process. Um, Certainly, we've done a lot along the way to dehumanize folks, and it's just really important to acknowledge that who you are is not just, it's not identity politics. It speaks to your experiences and your understanding around, you know, individual trauma, generational community-wide trauma, and, you know, things that are specific to those that, Experiences that um, make you maybe more or, or less likely to touch our justice system, more or less likely to have access to certain resources or not have access to those resources. And all of those things are, are so incredibly important. Um, and then just also on a really, really basic level, I know that for me it was really important to see women like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and Jessica Ramos running It also felt so important to me to talk about my experience as a queer woman, because I certainly I haven't had the ability or the experience to to have elected representatives that I I thought really aligned with my experiences on on that front. And it's it's powerful. One of the things that, again, I will always be incredibly grateful for throughout this campaign is the opportunity and, and privilege to connect with people and recognizing, and it's really, it's a really uncomfortable thing to talk about, but really recognizing that who I am in a lot of different ways meant something to people. And that's, that's pretty surreal and powerful and humbling, and um, I just think that it's so important. And, and if it results in more folks um, you know, running and, and coming up front and talking about these experiences so that we have those experiences centered in decision-making you know, positions, then great.
0: Well, and as this campaign took off, as your campaign took off... It became really intense. Yes. Getting endorsed by the New York Times, having presidential candidates kind of racing to be the first to endorse you. And, but all the, the pushback on the ground and, and, you know, in the political world as well. I was struck that you remained incredibly focused. Now, I don't know if you felt that way, but it seemed that way from outside, that, that, that there was sort of a, a steadiness to what you were doing. How did, how did you maintain that, that sort of clarity uh as as a young first time candidate being pulled in all these directions
1: you know i think that i'm going to be processing this experience for quite a long time uh my my therapist is going to be in business for <laughs> for for a while <laughs> <laughs> um i just felt always so grounded and rooted in my why in why i was running and it it wasn't about winning it wasn't about power it was just about, uh, again, this feeling tied to the survival of myself, my family, my clients, communities that just for for too, too long have been devastated by what our system was and, and has been doing and in so many ways has been designed to do. I will say this, I'm going to be really honest. It's nice to hear that what people experienced of me was somebody who was focused and poised and calm and Things, but there were moments um, throughout the campaign that were just incredibly, incredibly difficult. And I am just so thankful to have had a, a really good support system because my anxiety at some points just felt debilitating. And being able to say, "Hey, I, I need you know an extra therapy session," or "Hey, I have a friend that'll that'll stop by and and we'll talk for a little bit," or whatever it might be. Like my dogs were a, a huge help. But running for office. Is incredibly grueling. It is not healthy, and it is especially you know not healthy and, and that much harder when you are not you know uh, a machine picked candidate. You're not a career politician. You don't start with this war chest with a million dollars in the bank. You don't have these fancy consultants. I was working full time for you know more than half of the campaign. On I remember you know I I worked my last night court shift on February 28th, I was in night court from 5 p.m. to 1 1 a.m. in the morning and then like got up really early and I was, you know, doing campaigning stuff. And it's just, it's hard. You know, you don't have an income. You don't have health insurance. um, You have a very small team that's that's widely, you know, volunteer run, which really, really propelled us. It was a a really powerful coalition that we built. Um, But there were times where it, was incredibly hard and and I didn't feel like I was holding it together too well. But um to see how invested people were and what we were doing and, you know, I I think for people from the outside looking in, for them there was like this this takeoff point, right? Like that something happened and we it combusted and we blew up and we were everywhere. But what really kept me going was that throughout this process when we talked about like you know, February when we were petitioning and then you were getting the signatures in, in April and we were on the ballot and we're doing more and more of, of these candidate forums and seeing where how the, the other candidates were speaking about the issues and what they were doing. And the people on the inside, and certainly I, could feel the groundswell. Like I like I was just buzzing because I knew, I knew that we were building something incredibly special. You know, there was a point in the campaign that I'll never forget that we were starting to get you know more attention but at that point it wasn't you know the New York Times and AOC and all these different things and vocal and and make the road action had come out to support us and I remember standing with them and looking around and you know we were all talking about the fact that here we are a public defender running for DA and you have formerly incarcerated folks sex workers undocumented immigrants, activists and organizers, all coming together to support a district attorney candidate. And I I just I was just like, this is phenomenal. We are doing something so wildly different. And I think what really drove me was that even if other people couldn't quite see it yet, our volunteers, the people that were, were in it and the boots on the ground and supporting us, like we were just buzzing we knew that something was coming and that our our work was we, we were making a difference
0: yeah it sounds like this is the point at which the music should swell <laughs> <laughs> was there music you were listening to during the campaign do you uh oh you yes. had a soundtrack yes
1: i didn't make a soundtrack but i listened to a lot of lizzo got it just like her entire album just feels like you know personal anthems for every given moment of of your life um so i listen to to her a lot and cardi of course
0: well yeah
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um and then you also when you talk about your grounding and who you are you're very into rescue dogs
1: yeah they are my entire world
0: <laughs> there you go it's not a usual thing we talk about in politics but but this is a part of a human being running for public office you you this is a big part of who you are
1: yeah and quite honestly they were the source of the biggest fights I had in the campaign, actually, because... Really? Yeah, because I was like, one, it's self-care, but two, they're... I mean, they're... they're, s- I love them so much. So I have two rescue dogs. Their names are Natalie and Coltrane. And um, Nat is a Beagle-Pitbull mix, and she's just like just a ball of energy and super loving and Coltrane is very very sweet but he's he's really shy he was before I adopted him he um, was abused pretty badly and so he's got a, an anxiety disorder and we you know we have to work a, a long time with him to get, to get him to where he is um, and so the biggest fight I had on the campaign was like no you need to carve out time every single day for me to go home and get at least one walk in with them because other people were walking them at, at that point it was like my weekly therapy session and my dog walks and towards the very end I had you know, I did end up giving that up a, a little bit and that was really hard, but they're great. They're, yeah,
0: I, I am always interested in where candidates really ground themselves, you know, what what their touchstones are. And and I've following you. I noticed that you reference back quite often to the to the two dogs and, and <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: there's a lot of sanity in that. Uh, so let's let's go as you, you run this incredible campaign. It becomes national. I remember on the night that the vote count was taking place, I was fascinated by the fact that there were all sorts of other things going on in the news, but people kept around the country, kept referencing yeah. what's going on in Queens, what word from Queens. <laughs> and and then it it finishes, at least that night, and you won, and then you lost. Mm. Talk about that roller coaster.
1: Oh, gosh, what a roller coaster. Um I feel like I have gone through, I've I've felt all the feels. I've gone through all the feelings, mm-hmm. every stage of uh, of it. You know, that was a really, really powerful and incredible night. And I think despite the outcome, it still is something that I look back on really fondly and, and think of as like just incredibly beautiful. And I think, you know, really, truly that we one in so many different ways. It was hard throughout the process because it exposed so many other things besides not just what's wrong with our justice system, but also just the horrible horrible, you know, voting laws that we have in New York that that really are, you know, we should be doing everything to make sure voters are enfranchised, mm-hmm. not disenfranchised and you know, really disheartening to see that votes were were not opened or counted because of horrific like technical issues like not writing the word democrat even though you're a valid registered democrat like people not finding themselves on their on the the voter rolls and being sent to the wrong polling site or and things like that and having their votes thrown out for those reasons so that that's you know really tough but it it again exposes issues that I I think people are ready to organize around and make sure that we're having change around um one of the things that that made me really hopeful and energized and proud was that after all of this, before even before I ended up conceding, um, we had this big meeting with a lot of the community-based organizations that I had endorsed in my race, you know, and we came together and we talked about the things that we thought worked really well and we shared our appreciation of one another and then we were really honest about the ways in which we could have been better in our organizing, in our, how we interfaced with one another. And, and, what was really cool about that was that you could see that this coalition was not done; they were just getting started, and they were like, "Well, what are we? What are we organizing around next? How do we make sure we're holding the next district attorney accountable?" Because in in their minds, in my mind, there's a mandate for like very significant reforms to our system. So I, I think that we we have a lot to be proud of, and I am proud. And for me, this was never about a position this was about how do we further dismantle you know this this carceral system that we have the system of mass incarceration and really continuing to stay focused on that and we're going to build off of it you know i just think that if you spend too much time being upset about it or disheartened it, these they'd be wasted moments you know i'm in a place where i don't know what i'm going to do next i i and i've said this before whatever it is it's going to be a continuation of of you know the the work that just there's nothing that moves me in in the same way but what i do know is that in the in interim i am just trying to be as present and supportive of You know, the organizations that are doing the work of people that are are trying to, you know, take the baton and do the work. I'm going to be out in in San Francisco um, this weekend helping Chesa Boudin Mm -hmm. um, campaign, another public defender running for district attorney out in San Francisco. I've you know reached out some some um, insurgent candidates that are running for different positions just to just to be able to be an open resource to talk about. You know experiences and, and what I learned uh, along the way, and be able to just pay it forward as as much as I can. But um, yeah, the, the focus is the focus is is still there. There's nothing that 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 moves me or excites me more.
0: I you're going to be asked again and again whether you're going to run for another office. <laughs> you know that, <laughs> yeah. um, and and it's a fair question. It's 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 it a is. part of politics when you move the ball down the field so far. There is that question. What do you, what do you think about that? How do you respond?
1: You know, I well, the first thing that I say is, it, not enough time has passed. I am still just trying to to process and appreciate what we've done and and kind of catch up to myself a little bit and. There are so many people that are saying, I, "We think you should do this. You should do this. You can do this," and it's incredible to have all of these doors open. But what I've really wanted to do, and what I am doing, is taking some time to kind of drown out some of the noise and and reground myself. Um, and then, you know, from there, I'm talking to a couple of people that I consider like my north stars, um, and helping you know me figure out how best to to build off of what we did and and continue to drive and move the issues that I I ran on. Because that's certainly the work I I want to continue. And that could take the form of running for office. It could take the form of of doing, you know, work with an organization. But I'm not there yet. I don't know. I want to give myself some... I want to give myself some time. The one thing that I do know is that while I am trying to figure out my long-term plans, I have to put in place some short-term plans because, you know, my rent has to be paid. <laughs> I would like some health insurance. So it's, it, I think it's a couple of things happening, making sure that I'm doing work in the short term that I feel, feel good about, and that allows me the, the freedom to, to really take some time and, and think about what I, I want to do next.
0: Tiffany Caban, you really did show up. Uh, You're such a striking advocate. I I appreciate so much that that, uh, you've joined us today on on Next Left.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Join us next week as we take the Next Left with Wisconsin Representative Mark Pocan. He's the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, And we'll talk about changing Congress from the inside and from the outside. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia Steiner-Devoix. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vanden Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. Recording help this week by Sandra at Soundworks Studio in the beautiful borough of Queens, New York. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts.